Hello everybody and welcome to the finale of my very first solo series here on playing with myself on the internet, Playing Colossal by Nick Angel. I am so excited to see what Marco, Berger, and Alice discover in this last episode as we wrap up our time here in the Roomlands and the Colossal. This game has been an absolute blast for me to play. I love the world that you play in for this game. I love the card mechanics. I know I was one of the few defenders of card-based resolution mechanics, but actually sitting down and playing it and using it like this as the main mode of resolution has been really, really great and surprising, actually. Before we dive in to what Marco, Berger, and Alice will discover in these crackways along the sandy shore up against a wall of an oceanic room, I do have to do some announcements. Hey everyone, Rainy patching in here after the fact. This is coming out later than expected because it got so big, so forget the announcements, just enjoy the finale of Colossal, and I hope you listen to the other stuff that we've been putting out. Our RuneQuest campaign that we are streaming on Twitch bi-weekly and putting out on the feed, as well as future solo play things that myself and the other DMs are going to be doing, so... Stay tuned for more great role-playing content. Previously, Marco, Berger, and Alice, having defeated an astrolithic rook against all odds, stood before the fallen husk of a rook that is something thought to be almost mythical, legendary, upon the battlements where very few, if any, have gone and none have returned from. Our three protagonists have felled one of the most dangerous rooks in all of the Roomlands, and technically beyond. Taking their time to explore the insides and see how to pilot it, what information it had, which included many of the glyphs that are present on Marco's familial map, this new flying rook presented an opportunity of almost unlimited potential for Marco, Berger, and Alice. But before they could go off exploring on their own for answers, they felt responsible for finding a place for the cultists that they met in the rafters and the nomads that they met on the battlements. Flying down through the massive hole created in the ceiling of the roomlands in the roof of the battlements over a enormous oceanic room. Marco, Berger, and Alice, along with some of the cultists on their gargoyles, found an island in this ocean room. Originally perceived as a threat, and then technically a threat because there was a massive rook that emerged from the ocean, however, quickly dealt with in the within class flying this astrolithic rook. It's crazy how powerful this is. Marco, Berger, and Alice did manage to meet with the leader of this island. His name was Sorik. There was a cartographer, a hunter's guild. As always, we built a little village there. Um, and they did decide that they would take in these cultists and these nomads if they pulled their own weight. After having found them a place, Marco, Berger, and Alice left, flying all over, doing more of their exploring in this room that is an ocean, before finding a wall Along this wall was a sandbar that had been created from years and years of tides or waves crashing against this wall. But also, there was a crack in the wall. Conveniently, it was big enough. Even in the oracle or the exploration table, it did say large enough for everything to get through, which we are including our within. It might be a little bit of a squeeze, but I think that... This thing is an astrolithic rook. I think that if it wanted to, it could probably pull in portions of it. It's kind of, for lack of a better term, it's got a little bit of like Power Rangers Ultron style customizability. That's definitely not a word, but we're going with it. So let's go back to the crackways. Just a quick reminder, the last time we were in the crackways, this is where Marco and Berger met not only Alice, but Yelaris, the hunter who was working out of Rust Gorge's Hunter's Guild to infiltrate the plateau with the symbol 
the glyph from Marco's familial map that we kind of started working out is some kind of like a rookling factory or something like that. There may have been another one of those trapped massive rooks and it seems like there's some smuggling going out of there but also some strange illegal activity some maybe it's related to the cultists and then when we got up to the rafters after having been taken by a gargoyle we found that there was a pillar that led up there one of the theories was that these are marking places where people can ascend to the rafters or the battlements but when we got to the rafters and the battlements it didn't seem like these places would be access to answers because what they found was it's not like the stories where hunters and adventurers go to the battlements when they pass. It's just a terrifying place. So what are these places? What do these symbols mean? Why are they on this map that Marco has been given and has been handed down through his family for generations? Another theory that came up was that there's a key. So maybe it's not about opening something. It's about keeping something locked away. I think the first thing we have to do is have another exploration phase here in the Crackways. Now, we did say that in this sea cave, there was a settlement of non-humanoids, which we decided were more of those strangely sized rooks. They're not quite as large as medium rooks. They're not as hostile. They're kind of larger versions of rooklings. So I think that hopefully it comes up here in the crackways, but I kind of want to have a scene where we interact with that type of rook again, because I kind of want to make one of them the Bastion, which is one of the playable classes from the Roomland supplement. They're actually strange-sized humanoid rooks that can speak. But let's see if that comes up. We're going to flip cards for the exploration phase. In the Roomlands book, there is a Crackways encounter table. And now that we are the within class, actually our exploration phase hasn't changed. The followed, which Marco originally was with his Rookling friend, Berger, had an exploration score of five, and so does the within. So we're going to flip five cards and see what happens. A two of clubs, a queen of clubs, a seven of spades, a seven of diamonds, and a ten of clubs. Okay. So, as we always do in ascending order, our two of clubs, a black two card, says a great hall. A massive echoing chamber carved out of stone with ornate pillars throughout holding up the roof. It disappears into blackness in each direction you look due to its vastness. And because it is black, it is empty and echoing. Now the two sevens, we have both an intact and a ruined monolith. We actually ran into this back in the first time we were in the crackways, so this is actually awesome. A huge monolithic tablet stands before, covered in mysterious ancient runes. You suspect an academic back at a city might pay good money for this information, or perhaps you can translate it yourself. Now... This is where we originally met Alice. She was taking a rubbing of these, and Marco was very interested. It actually helped them escape the maze the first time they were in the crackways, so they're familiar with these monoliths, and we have both an intact and a ruined one. Let's go to the 10 card. A lost weapon. A powerful weapon left in the crackways. Either you come across it in a chamber, perhaps an ancient armory, or you spy it held by bandits. It clearly doesn't belong to them. Do you try and liberate it from their grasp? And because this is a black card, it says abandoned by an adventurer. Oh, that could be really sad, actually. And then lastly, our queen, which usually means encounters. So going up here. No, uh, it says this crackway is mostly raw caverns and caves with a little carving here and there to aid traversal. Oh, that's awesome. And that actually makes a lot of sense because this is a sea cave. This is probably not like the other walls, right? There's no access to another room from here. If anybody were to travel through these crackways and emerge on the side of the ocean, well, then you're just staring at a sandbar with ocean in front of you. So these being raw sea cave caverns makes a lot more sense. So as always, let's string these together. We have two ruined monoliths. We have a great hall. We have an abandoned weapon. And we have raw caves with 
carvings here and there for traversal. So I think those carvings are definitely the glyphs that are on the monoliths. I think that they are familiar to Marco and Alice. And I think that even from what they understood before, brushing up on it from their notes that they'd taken previously, I think that the astrolithic rook probably has some form of similar runes. And then we have our monoliths and a great hall. Now, I think that that's where I'm going to say that this group of bastions is. What we previously encountered may have been bastions, may not have been. They were serving that large, massive trapped rook, or at least responding to it. But these ones are just by themselves. And I think that it's funny because the bastion does say it's strange that they can speak. I think that there's probably a little bit of a barrier to communicate, but I think it'd be really fun that when Marco and Berger and Alice reach this great hall, that these bastions are defensive, they're not sure, no one's ever come from this way kind of thing. And it's even more interesting when they come arriving in an astrolithic rook. So maybe at first they're not defensive, they're confused, they're interested. And maybe that's their language, right? There is like a rook language and they start saying things that Marco Berger and Alice don't understand. Perhaps they're not immediately visible from within they're within the rook, and they, in this great hall where there's plenty of room to disembark, they basically park the astrolithic rook and emerge from it. Now, there may be a tense little standoff, but in this great hall, I'm going to say that one of the ruined, I'm going to say the ruined monolith is in this great hall, and they've kind of created their small living settlement, whatever you want to call it, around this. There are still glyphs and runes that you can make out along it, and maybe these things are like waystones within the crackways, which is cool and would help us actually navigate our way back if we can figure it out all the way back to the crackway near Marco's home room. Let's make an NPC out of one of these bastions to have a conversation with and see Because we've gotten information from cultists about what people assume is up there and why people like Marco's parents had a map and a key. We've been up to the battlements where all of these rumors and myths and legends talk about heaven above the colossal and found nothing but desolate twilight sky and astrolithic rook attacks, nomads struggling to survive. Why don't we get the opinion of the rooks, especially those who've, for some reason, grown to a strange humanoid size and have gained the ability to speak. So we're going to flip our three cards for this Bastion NPC. Now, what's interesting is I don't know if I want to give it a human name. So we'll come up with something different for that, but I'm going to flip anyway for kind of a inspiration for it. Our three cards that we get are Five of Hearts, Ace of Diamonds, Six of Clubs. So let's go to the NPC Oracle in the Roomland Supplement. And I might kind of mix and match these, so not go by order just to see what's interesting. Now we've actually used Ace, Five, and Six for names in the past, but I'm just going to use it and riff off of it for kind of a rook-sounding name. Let's go with the Ace, which would have been Nelia, but we can say its name is like Leet speak, so it's like N3714. And we can call it Nell. Now, I believe that was the name of the little girl up in the Nomad crew on the battlements, but Nell is fine for this as well. Oh, Null. Like zero. Yeah, Null is its name. No input. It doesn't understand when it's like, what's your name? Null. That's fun. Okay, so we got Null. We have six for its look, which is delicate. So I think maybe as opposed to being made of these sturdy, column-like, you know, turret formation, stony bodies, I think this one is more exposed gears and finer make, which allows it more maneuverability, but is clearly not as well defended. So it's delicate looking. However, its characteristic is dominating or intimidating. 
So maybe it's unsettling how human-like this bastion moves. And it's even stranger when emerging from this relatively confident, I think maybe... I think maybe Alice stays inside, basically points one of the fists that it could be rocket launched out at them, just in case. But Marco, obviously being Marco, he is the optimist, and he wants to give it a shot. There was kind of an interesting interaction before between Berger and these other Bastion-like rooks in the crackways the first time we were here. So I think Marco and Berger get out. And Marco, with the helm on, can sense these these rooks, these bastions around him, and they hold their hands up as if they come in peace. I think these rooks, obviously they may be magical. We rolled last time and they had ice magic. And they actually had similar glyphs on them to Burger. Oh, and that would make sense. I didn't even think of this. Those other ones had a glyph on them in an area where if they're keeping something locked away, why wouldn't the rooks be the defense? Why wouldn't they be automatic defense? And that's kind of how they were using those even broken husks of the rooks in the desert, in the canyonlands near that plateau. They were kind of set up like a alarm system, a defense system. Oh boy. So the rooks are the evil that the people of the Roomlands must live with because there's something worse locked away that the Rooks protected people from. Oh my gosh, we got there, guys. This is crazy. Okay, so now these Bastion-sized Rooks, these aren't medium or massive, and they're not Rooklings. These are like a new development to interact with people, maybe. And Marco, Berger, and Alice can be the people who kind of bridge that gap and maybe help bring them into society. And we can reform everything. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. All right. Wow. <laughs> Just flipping cards, everybody. Go out and grab this game. It is so good. And I'm so glad that in the finale, I'm stumbling across these, these ideas that I never would have had. Okay. Wow. So we have Null, who is going to be the leader of this group of bastions. And Null steps forward and at first, it's a few kind of strange sounds that emerge from it before Marco says, Berger, did you get that? And Berger looks and kind of gives a shrug because Berger's never made any kind of vocalization. And Marco says, we don't want to hurt you. We're just passing through looking for information. And he points to Berger and says, have you seen this glyph anywhere? And that's when Marco kind of looks around and sees that all of these rooks have a different glyph. We've seen quite a few. We've seen uh, burgers swirl with a line from the center out. We've seen, I believe, a diamond with three vertical slashes. We've seen some interesting shapes, and these ones have a different one. Maybe it's like, you know what would be cool? Kind of the alchemical symbol for water, which I think is an upside down triangle with a line through it. So these have a separate symbol, and Null shakes its head. And Marco immediately picks up on this and says, did you, do you understand me? And Null shakes its head up and down. And Marco says, can you speak? Can you mimic? And Null says, can you mimic? And Marco's eyes go wide. And he says, Alice, get out here. We could talk to them. And I'm not going to have the entire conversation because again, you know, in your solo role-playing games, you can play out as much of a conversation as you want. I feel like for the sake of this, the important thing is that we have reached that barrier, right? Between the glyphs, communicating about what they mean, a shared written language, translating what Marco, Berger, and Alice know as far as what they've managed to figure out from translating themselves and then working with these bastions. They know that they can make vocalizations, so I don't think they're going to spend a ton of time down here, but this is actually really fun. In my opinion, this is like, this feels right. So I'm going to fast forward over the entire thing. We're not going to make a village or a settlement because that's not a traditional human settlement, but I am going to flip one card for an oracle table, which is going to be, does Null know how to navigate the crackways? And I guess we could kind of roll in, are these monoliths like waypoints let's go ahead and flip and say can 
Null, the Bastion, help get Marco Berger and Alice around and in the crackways. Flip a card. It is a King of Spades that is a black card, which is a yes, and a high black card is a yes with a bonus, which means that Null is coming with. He is joining the party. Oh my gosh, <laughs> for our last episode. Oh, now I want a Bastion friend. But hey, maybe I'll come back in the future and we'll play out Bastion and Null. But yes, with a bonus. So Null does know the way around the crackways. And not only that, the monoliths are a waypoint map kind of structure. And it is kind of the basis for these new rooks, these bastion-sized rooks. It is the foundation of their society. Maybe there's a lot more of these bastion-sized rooks than people realize. And they've been basically translating information from the ancient, massive, and medium rooks who were programmed to do a certain thing. They've managed to, being rooks themselves, process the knowledge of that programming, process it themselves, work on all of this stuff. Oh, this is so cool. Okay, so yeah, uh, the answer is yes with a bonus. Null is going to escort our protagonist through the crackways. Now, Marco is never going to stop hanging out with Null because the opportunity for learning and bridging gaps between human-rook relations and all this stuff the promise is insane. Not only that, he's going to be one of the first humans, if not the first human, along with Alice, to return from the battlements, obviously the cultists and the nomads as well, with an astrolithic rook. This is world-changing. Now, I'm not going to get into that, but I do want to get into what these glyphs mean and what Marco's key does. Oh, we can't forget the weapon that was abandoned by an adventurer. Maybe it's actually a weapon that these rooks recovered from somebody who unfortunately perished or something in these crackways, and they don't use it. They have no need to use it. So let's go ahead and flip to see what the weapon is. It says it's an ancient weapon, a powerful weapon. So what could it be? You know, I think it's probably like a long rook spear that is maybe imbued with a type of magic. Let's go to the tables where you create a rook opponent. And we will figure out if there was a type of magic, and then we'll just flip a card, say it's that. And we can also say that this is the type of magic that Null and these Bastions here are. So we're going to flip one card for the type of magic that this Spear and Null can perform. And it is Hearts, so it is Rumble Magic. Ooh, a Rumble Spear. That's really cool. We are a very, we are a very Rumble-heavy party here. We... Started with Berger and Ice Magic, who he ended up getting Rumble Magic in Rust Gorge. Marco has a Rumble Helm, and now Alice has a Rumble Spear. So if anybody gets within range after she shoots her arm, her ranged arm, she has a spear to protect her that has some kind of strange Rumble power. Cool. And now, just because I love exploration phases... Always opportunities to add more information. I'm going to do one more as we travel with Null, the Bastion, Rook, through the crackways. I love this. Let's go ahead and flip five more cards for our exploration phase, and then we will arrive somewhere, and I think that maybe we can start making progress towards getting an answer, and then we'll do a nice fun epilogue. Flipping five cards, we have a seven of hearts. An eight of hearts, a four of spades, a queen of spades, and an ace of hearts. All right, so as always, in ascending order, we have our ace of hearts, which says treasure, something of value left in the halls and caverns of the crackway. If it is black, it might be an artifact or found on the body of a dead adventurer, but it is red, so it says a broken crystal from the walls. Ooh, a broken crystal treasure. Ooh, we're going to have to see if that's important to Null or not. Our Black 4 says, 
Oh, perilous staircase. No handrails, just cut from stone. You'll probably be all right, right? Now, this is one of the things that we encountered the first time we were in the crackways and unfortunately could not explore. And we even said that there was one of those glyphs from Marco's map on it. He wanted to explore it, but they had to escape. Now we find another staircase. And I think that, let's flip one more card, Oracle, yes or no. Is there a glyph above this one? Six of spades, that is just a flat yes on the oracles. So this is another staircase to a glyph that is present on Marco's familial map. Ooh, see, we got there, we got there. All right, our red seven, we know what that is. That is a ruined monolith. But again, for someone like Null, this is a waypoint. This is a feature that helps them navigate these crackways. They know where they're going based on this monolith. The red eight says trapped rook. Because it's red, it is massive sized. You come across an agitated rook trapped in a large cavern, but not quite large enough for it. If you choose to fight it, use the combat rules from the base rulebook. I don't think we're going to need to. Between being an astrolithic rook and having Null here, who we know they've become kind of responsive to these trapped rooks, maybe there's more to it there. So we're not only going to get information about this broken crystal, maybe we'll get information about these trapped rooks. And then lastly, our Black Queen is exactly what we had last time. Mostly raw caverns and caves with little carvings to aid travel. So, awesome. See, we, re we got there again with the exploration phase. And, you know, if we got into a fight, that'd be fine. Combats are always fun. But I do think that with the within class and our astrolithic rook body, we will steamroll a lot of things. So it does kind of start the countdown towards wrapping up a campaign, which is perfect. So, stringing these together, I think maybe, oh, to make this interesting, obviously we have the ruined monolith, which we get more information from, but having null at all is going to be absolutely massive when we bring, bring it into a city. The information that we're going to get and give and work out is going to be so cool. We have the trapped massive rook and a broken off crystal from the walls. The last thing we're going to get to is going to be that staircase, and Marco is not going to let that pass by this time. So I'm thinking we have this broken crystal from the walls, which I think Alice, of course, says, ooh, pretty. That's awesome. Like, and she like goes to pick it up, and I think that Null looks at her, and Marco says, is that a problem? And Null hesitates before shaking their head and practicing their uh, shared language now and says, no. And so Alice goes, oh, cool. And she picks it up. And I think that this has broken crystal, but I think that there's still maybe some latent rookstone energy or magic to it. Maybe it is some kind of magical energy source or something. So... At first, Null is not keen on Alice taking it, but when prodded and asked about it, I think Null maybe just says something along the lines of, oh, maybe they're seals. Maybe they're like seals on the lock, right? They're contingency protection. Again, like the rooks. Whatever happened in the past that has been locked away these people took no chances. So then finally, we get to this staircase. And you know what? Maybe this staircase is kind of switchbacking and built haphazardly around and atop the cave-in that is this trapped massive rook. But because of our flying astrolithic rook and having Null with us, we managed to make our way up it. Now, where... Where will we emerge? Let's think about that. Oh, perfect. I just flipped through the PDF, and right after the Crackways Encounters table, there is a Biomes of the Colossal. So maybe this staircase leads out of the Crackways, not through a wall, but up a wall. 
and emerges almost like where there'd be a window or something like that. And that could obviously make for very interesting information as far as what's locked away or why these glyphs are where they are. Obviously, the other one was in a plateau that happened to be at the base of a pillar up to the rafters. So if this one goes halfway up a wall or something like that, that could be really interesting. And this Biomes of the Colossal page has a thing where it says you can flip a card and that's the biome that you come out to. So obviously, whenever you can, let's get random. Let's flip a card and see what biome we come out into. We flipped a three of hearts, which is, ooh, Icy Tundra. Icy Tundra areas bring a whole new level of survival and whole unique cultures have sprung up with special ways to survive in this harsh environment. They are not like other rooms in the Roomlands. They have specific rules. Oh, in the Roomland supplement. Okay, so we're going to go to it and we're going to do another exploration phase. Another crazy thing about where these glyphs seem to be located is they're really inhospitable areas. This one is located halfway up a wall in an icy tundroom, while the other one was obviously in a harsh desert canyon land. So that could be interesting. I'm not going to read as I normally would about the tundroom straight out of the book. I think that Marco, Berger, Alice, and Null are going to jump right into exploring this room in their astrolithic rook. So, flipping five cards for our exploration phase in this tundroom encounter table, we get a, uh-oh, queen of diamonds, jack of diamonds, king of clubs, five of spades, nine of clubs. Oh, no. Well... We know that high cards typically are encounters. Let's go ahead, and as usual, we will go lowest to highest. Our five of spades says, A blizzard sets in. Your visibility is reduced to almost nil, and progress will be slower. If it's survivable, which it is because it is a black card, then you can continue on your exploration phase bearing the weather in mind. If it is extreme, blah blah blah. Okay. Our nine of clubs says calling. Oh, good. You come across a place or person that is key to your calling. Maybe a building with a clue in it or one of the locations you were looking for on your quest. Yes, please. There it is. We followed the glyph in the crackways up this staircase around a trapped massive rook out into a tundra room. So maybe, oh, well, let's finish reading these and then we'll tie them all together. We have our jack, which says medium rook. We have our queen, which says ice rook. And we have our king, which says enemy rook knot. So now I do have to tell you a little bit about the tundra room. Typically, exploring the tundra room very much revolves around short exploration phases between villages and settlements because there's no long-term travel here. However, in our astrolithic rook, I think we can kind of hand wave that. Again, this is the finale, we're trying to wrap it up, but we gotta find out about our calling, which we conveniently pulled a card for. However, there are people who live in the tundra. The people who cling to life in the tundra room are known as the Knot, but due to the harsh conditions, there's no civilization. The Knot are viciously divided into tribes who fight tooth and nail to secure resources, food, and equipment from other tribes. It's the only way out here on the ice. And because wildlife in the tundra room is unlike anywhere else in the Colossal, teams of knot hunters are required to take down wildlife and the beasts here. And due to ice being one of the three core elements of magic within rooks, there's something of a home habitat for ice rooks. As we saw, we drew one of those cards. Rooks with an ice rook zone at their core can thrive here and are considerably tougher to take down. Then, there are the rook knots. From a distance, they're impossible to distinguish from standard rooks, and once they're upon you, your chances of survival are slim. Well, normally. The Knot have developed a unique way to do battle with rival tribes. They command a defeated rook husk with a team of five and steer it like the crew of a ship. With a helmed at the head commanding the operation, 
armed warriors attuned with still-attached arms of the Rook, a followed at the core operating machinery with a Rookling squad, and a mounted maintaining the mechanical parts like an engineer, the crew sails Rooks out into the ice sea to do battle with rival Rooknauts, siege camps and villages, and surprise unprepared solo travelers. But perhaps the solution lies with playing these crews at their own game. Maybe it's possible to assemble your own crew. Ah, uh, we don't need a Rooknaut, we got an Astrolithic Rook. But very interesting. We're going to have to talk about how these encounters play into the calling. And because of our calling card being black, it does say that it is a person, not a place. So maybe we need to deal with one of these Rooknaut crews to get us where we need to go. Interesting. So again, going over it, and this actually is pretty easy to string along. It is going to be a pretty brutal combat phase, but here goes. We have our blizzard, which is going to be what kind of draws our characters and the astrolithic rook, the within, into this battle. Basically, I think that these ice rooks, obviously, are suited to these conditions and are probably going to ambush us. A medium rook is also present, and a enemy rook knot. Oh, you know what? We're, we're basically going into a blizzard, and we get a little lost, and this enemy rook knot crew was actually hunting this medium rook because it was easier pickings. And then an ice rook is going to ambush us, and there's going to be this big four-way fight. Oh boy, this is going to be an interesting battle. But hey, it's the finale, that's how we do these things. So let's build our enemies and talk about what these new enemies look like and how they're built using the rules from Colossal. We're going to start with the classic and create our medium rook that was the easy pickings for this rook not crew before we made things much more difficult. And going back to the core book of Colossal, to create our rook, we're going to flip a few cards. A medium rook is roughly the size of a car or small building, and we flip a couple of cards right off the bat to determine its magic type and body type. So we flipped a diamond for its magic type, which means ice. Okay, appropriate. And then its body type is a jack, which is defense. So it is a defensive ice type medium rook. So maybe it's a smaller version of these ice rooks that get really nasty out here in the tundra room. So that would make sense as to why this rook knot is going after it. Then we just have to do two more things. We flip two more cards. What is its weapon? And what would be the reward for defeating it? It is a 10 for its weapon, so it is melee, defense. This makes sense. It's actually kind of a lot like Burger, but I'm imagining it more like a quadrupedal, almost like ice turtle shell-looking medium rook. So that's our medium rook. And then what would be the reward we get for it? A heart, which says Rookling. Oh, another Rookling, another Ice Rookling. Next, we're going to talk about the Ice Rooks found in the Tundra Room. Now, it says here, fighting Ice Rooks is just like regular Rooks, except in the Tundra Room, they're always massive, they always use ice magic, and they have a combat score of 5. Typically, they are huge ancient Rooks with icicles growing off of them, appearing almost like a beard or hair. That's awesome. Like colossal ice giants stalking the Tundra Room. Let's flip a card to see if they have a melee or a ranged weapon. They have a ranged weapon. Ooh. So maybe they pull these icicles off of them and throw them like spears. And they have a score of five. So we have a medium rook with a score of three. And we have a ice rook with a score of five. Then we're going to fight the rook knot as well. Now, Creating a Rook Knot to fight is actually really interesting, and what we do is we use our normal battle rules to create a Rook opponent like I would for a massive Rook. However, oh my goodness, this one has a combat score of 6, so it matches us. We create magic body and weapon type as normal, but there's a different reward table, and the way we do it, instead of flipping card by card, attack by attack, we actually flip 5 cards face down in the orientation of 1 at the top for a head, three across in the next row for arm, core, arm, and then one at the bottom for legs or some form of motion. Oh, that is so cool. 
But first things first, let's go ahead and flip for its magic body type and weapon type. We did flip another diamond, so it is ice, which makes sense. Why wouldn't they use the magic type that is beneficial to their terrain? So they have an ice rook knot. They've assembled it from a fallen one, presumably. We have its body type, I've a two, so that is an attack type. It is an aggressive rook knot. This is like a raiding skiff of a rook knot by this tribe here, this crew. And then lastly, its weapon type is just over, so it is a melee type. Ooh, so it relies on speed, attack type, melee, diamond. So yeah, maybe this thing totally is just faster than its typical opponents. And of course, not even planning to, I talked about how this medium rook is a turtle, so see, it all comes together. So to start this combat phase, I'm going to flip our six cards right from the get-go. Let's see what we get. A nine of spades, a four of hearts, a four of diamonds, a jack of spades, and a four of spades, oh my gosh, and a two of spades. Those are not good cards, oh no. I will lay out the rook knot now. So we have one face down at the top, which is the head, three across the middle, which is the arm, the body, the second arm, and then one at the bottom, which is the legs or mobility, which for this, I think we're going to say is probably some kind of magical rudder, right? Propelling it through the ice, like a, like a skiff, like a fast boat would be. And then... We will flip as we go for the other two combatants, which are going to be combat score of three for the turtle medium rook and a combat score of five for the massive ice rook. But as we have this laid out right now, I think I want to get into the, the fictional positioning, imagining how this combat would even start. We are flying through this tundroom in our astrolithic rook. Marco at the helm towards the top near where the head would be, we have Berger and Alice on either arm, basically manning their offensive stations as they did previously. And now our new member, Null, is probably in the middle somewhere, similarly to the Rook Knots, how they have a engineer kind of working on all of the mechanical stuff. I think Null is probably in the middle, familiar with all of these glyphs and all of the Rook language uh, that we've been discovering since the beginning, and making sure that this Astrolithic Rook is no pun intended, firing on all cylinders. We see the flying rook flying throughout a thick, swirling blizzard. Just in the distance, we can make out a hulking figure kind of slowly making its way along the tundra surface, cutting through this blizzard. It's got a relatively large silhouette, and it is trundling along. Not far in the distance, we see a faster shape approaching. It's kind of cutting through a lot of the blizzard. It's, it's clearly traveling quickly. And as we are observing what is going to be the rook knot strike on this medium rook, and we are floating there flying, I think that we're going to get surprise attacked by an icicle that flies through the air. And that's going to be this ice rook. Let's see. We're going to flip the first card for the ice rook. This is going to be a difficult combat to keep track of because there's three different opponents all kind of doing their own thing as we're also just trying to make it out of this in one piece. So flip for the icicle that flies through. Appropriately, we flipped a five of clubs, which is a weapon attack, which would be these icicles that they are throwing, these ice rooks. And we do have two cards that can beat this five, which is a terribly sad thing to even say but I think we do have to use one of them. So we're going to use our nine of spades against this five of clubs. And a spade, again, is different for our astrolithic rook. They don't correspond to the normal fighting rules. So a spade for us is a laser attack. So as this icicle is hurling its way towards us, I think that it's probably Berger who does not want to get hit with an icicle. He is also a little ice rookling. So he fires off a laser that just slices right through this thing and counterattacks. And this ice rook stumbles back, hit by something, 
it probably has never experienced before. Now, technically, it's not us versus all three of these opponents. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to make piles for all of the opponents and pull from those. So I'm going to put the other four cards that represent this ice rook over here. I'm going to put three cards that represent the turtle medium rook over here. And then we have the cards that represent the rook knot over there. Now the plan was for the rook knot to ambush attack this medium turtle rook. So I'm going to flip a card from the rook knot against the turtle medium rook and let them soften each other up a little bit first, only because fictionally that was the scene that we painted, right? So we're going to flip the first card for, ooh, the turtle has a jack of clubs. And I think that this first attack from the rook knot would probably come from the head or the helm, right? Making the first attack, calling out the battle plan and all that. So let's flip the card at the helm of the rook knot and see if it's enough. It is a 10 of diamonds, which is not enough. So they think they're about to hit it, but because we described this thing as a turtle, it is a defensive type medium rook. The magic of the helmed user at the helm of this rook knot does not break through the defensive thick stony shell of this rook. And it actually, I think it has like, if you think of it like a turtle shell, right? I think maybe those individual segments of the shell can be detached and almost flung like projectile weapons. That's really cool. And so technically, this Rook has scored a hit against the Rook Knot, which has a score of six. A quick reminder, typically you need to win the majority of card flips against an opponent in order to overcome them. I'm going to do this battle similarly, but basically any cards flipped against one of the combatants, so even between the two, is going to count towards that unit being overcome. So with this turtle fending off the rook knot that was attempting to make an attack, maybe the presence of this ice rook attacking us and our presence in the sky is going to obviously complicate things, right? So I think that for the moment, those two fights are still going to be happening where this ice rook is going to have its attention split between the flying astrolithic rook with our heroes in it and the rook knot making a move on one of these smaller rooks in the tundra. So let's flip a card for the ice rook. We get a five of diamonds. Now, unfortunately, with a five, we can't beat that except with one card. I'm tempted to let this one ride and take a point of damage, maybe. Because waiting out for cards like four or less, which is the majority of our cards here, is really not going to be great. So it has a five of diamonds, which is an ice magic attack. We're going to use our diamonds, which for the astrolithic rook is a rocket attack. So we attempt to, this time it's Alice, attempting to shoot the rocket arm. Like we talked about how she basically made one of these arms like a retractable punch similar to her personal arm. She attempts to do that to knock this icicle away but what happens is it actually embeds in the hand of this astrolithic rook and when she pulls it back it's kind of not functioning as well as it could so we are going to take one damage from that clash next i think in order to continue doing what they came to do we are going to get another attack of the rook knot against this medium rook um but they're probably going to change their target soon because it's one thing to attack something like this medium-sized rook when there isn't an ice rook present or there isn't a strange flying rook present. Oh, you know what? We should consult an oracle and we're going to ask the question, do the people of the tundra room aboard this rook knot view us as a threat or something completely new and confusing? So obviously black cards are yeses, red cards are no. And we flip a three of clubs, which is a low black card. So that means yes, with a complication. So yes, they view us as a threat, but they can't really engage us as we're flying around in this blizzard. So for the moment, they kind of have to deal with the others, which is good for us. So one more clash between the medium-sized turtle ice rook and the 
Rooknot. We have a six of hearts from the medium-sized Rook versus I think this time they're going to attempt to use one of their arms on it. Again, we talked about how they are a fast Rooknot ship on this ice and they are a melee type. So maybe they're going to go in and they're going to attempt to like spear it or something so that way they can drag it. And they flip an eight of diamonds. Now diamonds are creative attacks. So again, we see this Rooknot. Yeah, they, they do have some kind of fancy grappling technique. You know, one of these arms is actually like, it's a harpoon. That makes all the sense in the world. They are like a raiding skiff boat out on the ice of the tundra. So they have like a harpoon arm that launches out, digs its way into this medium-sized rook. And now they have returned one of the wounds. Now, as this hit lands, I think that the ice rook is going to come to the defense of this medium-sized rook being attacked by the Rook Knot. So there's going to be a clash there, but I think that depending on what we flip, maybe our protagonists get in the middle, get in the way, and use this as a way to not have to fight the Rook Knot if they can defend them. So let's see. We're going to flip one more card. It is an eight of spades for this Ice Rook, which would be an unarmed attack. So it's going to literally lumber over like this frozen colossal giant covered in ice this castle and it is going to attempt to hit this rook knot and disable it as it is flying throughout the tundra using these attacks against the smaller medium rook except we are going to use our jack of spades which for a astrolithic rook is a laser attack again so it works the first time. Why not work the second time? This time, uh, Burger lines up a shot and zzzz, a laser just fires in between the ice rook and the rook knot that it was going to attack. And it kind of just cuts across a piece of it. A bunch of ice just shears off the side of it, crashing into the tundra below. And the rook knot manages to turn and get out of the way of this ice rook threat. Now, unfortunately, that leaves us with a four, a four, and a two for our remaining attack cards in this combat. So that's not good. But you know what? I think that following up on the opening that we just provided for this Rook Knot, I'm going to flip their other arm card against another card from this Ice Rook. Because that would really be a better score for them, but typically it's probably not something that they're going after. But if they have support, then they might be able to deal with it. So we flip a card for the Ice Rook, and it is a Nine of Diamonds, which would be a magic attack. The other arm for the Rook Knot is going to be... Oh no, it's an Ace of Spades. So that's a really unfortunate attack. So they attempt to turn and take advantage of this opening, but what happens is you're fighting an Ice Rook on Ice Rook territory, and this thing, the ice that was sheared off of it, it looks like it was probably you know, no longer usable by this Ice Rook, except what it does is it clenches its fist and this ice returns kind of to its hand. And all of a sudden it's created like this spiky gauntlet. And as the Rook Knot turns to attempt to hit them again with the other side of the arm, this thing just comes down with a sickening crunch of a magical punch against the Rook Knot's side. I don't think... I think if Marco Berger and Alice know that there are humans aboard this Rook Knot that are piloting it here against Rooks out in the tundra, they're going to feel obliged to protect them even if they know that this is going to be a tense situation. So I think that I'm going to take the chance and flip the last card here from this Ice Rook and see if it might be something. It basically needs to be an Ace, a 2, or a 3 for us to be able to beat it. So it is a 2. It is a 2 of Hearts. We will counter that with our 4 of Hearts hearts being a grab attack for our astrolithic rook the within class so i think that it punches the side of this rook knot but what happens is we have the ability to fly this rook knot is fast but we are probably faster in the air we fly forward we grab the arm of this ice rook and just yank it and we just pull this thing through the ice it is dragging shards of ice being flown all over the place and we just yank it away from the rook knot technically that is the third successful attack against this thing so i think what happens is maybe we pull the arm and it pops right off kind of thing 
and this thing kind of falls, sputtering, and is going to cut its losses and, and take off. Because that is three out of five successes against this Ice Rook. We do still have the Turtle, which I think is in full defensive mode at this point. It is kind of surrounded by all of the combatants, and I think that it is just going to attempt to attack the Rook Knot again that has kind of been circling it. Oh my goodness, we just flipped a King of Diamonds. It literally can't be beat on this attack. So this attack is going to go against the Rook Knot, and I think it's gonna go against its ability to move. Another Ace, an Ace of Clubs. This is a brutal, brutal success as this thing gets in the way and basically maybe it like kind of burrowed kind of underneath portions of the ice and as the rook knot was turning around it's still very maneuverable but it doesn't see this lump of ice this turtle back on here and this rook knot just drives its hull right into this turtle like shell and it just kind of stands up and we see the Rook Knot come out of the ice and kind of tilt on its side and just crash and skid along its side out here in the middle of the tundra. We don't have anything that can beat it, but we do have two cards left and they have no cards to counter us. So that's why we can just use one of our attacks against this thing now to drive off the medium Rook. And we're going to save our other card and not attack this Rook Knot. Attempt to make friends and PCs and find out what this glyph is doing in this Tundrum. So that is the combat. We use our one of our other spades, which is a laser attack, which kind of just shoots across this medium-sized Rook and it borrows itself back down in the ice and takes off. We did not defeat either of those two rooks, the ice rook or the medium rook. But the more important thing is helping out these tundra villagers, getting them back to safety and seeing if they can help us get answers about these glyphs. I think that following the chaos of that ambush fight from the ice rook and interrupting the hunt of the rook knot against this medium sized turtley rook. Obviously, just like what happened when we were in the Oceanic Room, this Astrolithic Rook approaching the Rook Knot is going to be met with hostility. So it is very quick that Marco brings the flying Rook down to land and gets out with a gesture of peace. It is very confusing to the folks of the Rook Knot, but he quickly explains, because of the cold, we're not here to hurt you. We've come a very long way. I'm sure you have a lot of questions, and so do we. Let us help you right your ship, and we can find somewhere safe so we can discuss things. And the crew of the Rooknot says, not before we take what we came for. And they're going to loot this medium-sized Rook. As they go to work, stripping this rook for pieces and all of these things that were inside of that shell, which look a lot like the inside of other rooks, right? There's an engine room with maybe a rookling. That was one of the things that was a reward we could have gotten. But regardless, they, they managed to take parts. They managed to take certain little things from this rook that they're going to need both to survive and to improve their own rook knot. I am going to flip because not that we need more loot or anything like that, but if you defeat a rook knot... You do get to flip, and there are really cool rewards, depending on the suit that you flip. And I think that because technically we did drive off the Ice Rook and technically probably defeat this Medium Rook, they're going to offer us a piece of it as well. So let's see what it is. The options here are a Great Ice Sword, a Great Ice Shield, an Icicle Rookstone, which sounds cool, and a Legendary Treasure if we flip a Diamond. Ooh. But we flip a club which says Great Ice Shield. Hewn from the body of an ancient ice rook, this shield completely absorbs all incoming ice attacks. No damage from ice magic. Ooh, that's really cool. And it's fitting, right? Because we talked about how the shell of that medium-sized rook, even if it wasn't an ancient ice rook, we can pretend that it kind of is. And uh, yeah, it maybe we affix it to the outside of the astrolithic rook so it negates ice damage. That's really cool. 
All right, but more importantly, let's consult the Oracle and ask them a question. Do these ice raiders know where to find anything having to do with the glyph that we followed up the staircase from the crackway into the window of the tundra room and where we can follow it to get answers? And we flip a red queen, so it's no, but there is an upside. They don't know about the glyphs, but they do know that there is a place that in their culture they've been told never to go. And because we have an astrolithic rook with the ability of flight and are pretty badass, we did take a wound in that last fight, which I am going to dock from our combat score because we did say it was an icicle going through one of the hands. So we'll have a five combat, five exploration until we manage to recover that. But they do know a place they're not supposed to go. So I think that's where we're going to go. They warn us against it. But we tell them how important this is to everything we've been searching for. They wouldn't believe us if we told them all the places we've been. But instead, we give them a determined look, nod, let them go on their way back to their village with their loot. And they point us in a direction across the tundra. We make relatively good time, flying forward before eventually reaching the foothills of a frozen mountain, which raises up to the skies, and before you know it, actually leans against another wall of the tundra. This room is huge, but even here there are walls, and halfway up this mountain, just above where the mountain peak lies, luckily not out of reach for a flying rook, is a door, or maybe a window? And beneath that window is one of the glyphs that is on Marco's familial map. As Marco Berger, Alice, and Null fly into this window, it's almost like a hangar for something that would fly. It's a landing space. It's just an empty square open to one side. Now this is a wall. Typically they're sturdy, they're flat, they're solid. Sometimes there are crackways. But in this one, it's like it was carved out of the wall. And as our heroes, on foot, coming out of the Astrolithic Rook, approach the back wall of this opening, they see a door open, its hinges frozen. It'd probably be hard to shut if they tried. But they look down a staircase that leads into an unbelievably large room. It's like a hangar. There are stations on both sides, left and right, going down a huge open room. This door is open. This room is open. Luckily, it is incredibly inaccessible, and it does not appear that anyone has been here for a very, very long time. As Marco, Berger, Alice, and Null wander the floor of this incredibly large hangar, they realize what is here. It's a rook factory. It's a programming site. It is a construction facility. It's almost like there are assembly lines or machinery that would have built these rooks at some point in the past people built these for once everyone is quiet Alice included Marco Berger Alice and Null wander this hangar this factory there are more glyphs and runes of the Rook language, Null happens to help translate some of the more difficult pieces. Berger sifting through materials and resources that were used to not only build these Rooks out of castle pieces and masonry and magic and Rook stones, but for what reason? 
Marco looks for offices or any source of information on the technology that would have been required, what they would have been doing to build these, why they were doing it. Let's go ahead and consult an oracle and see if maybe there's any historical reference or context for why there would have been a Rook production facility, any evidence at all as to why or who was doing this. We're going to flip one card. It is an Ace of Hearts. So that is a low red card. So that means no, and it's worse. Oof, how could it be worse? I think it's been raided. That's why the door was open. Someone broke in here, who knows when, and took all of that information. I'm going to flip one more oracle. We're going to do it for the story generator and see if we can get anything interesting, maybe, about this. We have a 10, a 3, and a king. Wow. A king for inciting storytelling. Capture. Subject. 10, a strange and complicated machine. Twist. 3, a murder. At some point, someone who is working on these things, maybe for good, maybe for ill, they were killed, and their research was taken from them. The complicated machinery, stolen, captured, now used for nefarious purposes. This could be an origin story for why the Roomlands and Colossal are the way they are. But that's only for the viewers. Marco does not get this context. Going back up the stairs to check, Marco looks at the door that has been frozen open and sees on it a keyhole. There is no handle on this door. There is only a hole in the middle. And only one type of key could open this door. Or more importantly, keep it closed and locked away to the public. And as he thinks about that, Marco remembers the plateau. The first glyph he saw. The smugglers. Yelaris, a hunter, infiltrating their ranks. Something was happening in there. Something that Marco now knows he has to stop. That will end part one of this finale. Thank you for joining me. The other two episodes will be up right after this, so continue on. I'll do my goodbyes at the very end. Thank you for listening. <laughs>